Good morning again. We are um, continuing on our study of Genesis this morning, so you may want to turn there and have that available if you have a Bible, Genesis 38 and 39. Sorry we don't have the text printed this morning. It was just too much to fit in. So, But we are continuing with our study of the life of Joseph as recorded in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. In our first study, we looked at chapter 37, verses 1 to 11, in which we are introduced to a young Joseph, just 17 years of age, and who was living and working with his family. And in that introductory account, we saw how, due to his father's foolishness and his father's favoritism, a great deal of deep and destructive tension had developed between Joseph and his brothers. And then in our second study, Genesis 37, 12 to 36, we saw the tension between Joseph and his brothers escalate into full-blown hatred, which very nearly resulted in violence. And in the end, Joseph was spared. He was sold as a slave to a passing trader caravan who in turn sold him to a prominent Egyptian. And in the midst of examining all of that, we saw how in spite of the personal hardships that Joseph experienced, The events that took place clearly displayed the hand of God guiding and shaping Joseph's story at every twist and turn. This morning we pick up with chapter 38 and what at first may seem like an intrusion. Almost as if the story was just randomly inserted here for no immediately apparent reason. This impression is only highlighted, I think, when you read the closing verse of chapter 37, skip chapter 38, and jump immediately to the opening verse of chapter 39. Nevertheless, and in spite of appearances, chapter 38, as I hope to show, is not an intrusion into the Joseph story, but is here for quite deliberate reason. plays an important role in the developing storyline. Perhaps one way to understand what's going on here is to think about something that uh, you and I have seen countless times in the world of film, and that's the cutaway. You know, there you are, you're following a developing storyline. For example, you know, the orcs are pounding away at Helm's Deep, and then just as they're about to kind of burst through the gate, the camera switches to a different scene, and it's Gandalf leading this whole group of horsemen to the battlefield. And as you understand through that technique, both of those events are taking place simultaneously. That's how the story's developing. Well, that's what's going on here in Genesis 38 and Genesis 39. It's sort of the literary version of that technique. As Joseph is being carried off in this trader caravan, as that storyline is developing in that direction, we're given a brief account of another storyline that began to develop at the same time and in a very different direction. The account of Judah, Joseph's older brother. Now because we're covering a lot of ground, uh, we're going to have to move pretty quickly. And so rather than reading right through these chapters, I will be attempting to summarize them instead as we go along. But I would commend them to you uh, to read and reflect upon during the week as there are a number of important lessons to be drawn from them, only some of which we will highlight this morning. With that as our introduction then, let me pray before we dig in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
as the psalmist prayed, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And in this context, Father, that simply cannot be improved upon. And so we would simply make this prayer our own. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, right on the heels of telling us that Joseph has now become the possession of an Egyptian officer at the end of chapter 37, right on the heels of that, the story shifts rather abruptly. And it's no longer Joseph who's at center stage, but his brother, Judah. Now, you may wonder, what's so important about Judah? Why does his story matter? I mean, all the other brothers had a story, too. Let me give you two reasons. Judah was important, firstly, because he was, at this point, the most likely to get the lion's share of his father's inheritance. Reuben had disqualified himself because of his disgraceful behavior with Jacob's servant wife. Simeon and Levi, the next oldest, as you may recall, had also disgraced themselves in the whole affair with Dinah, which resulted, among other things, in their violent and wholesale slaughter of the men of Shechem. Judah was the next in line after these three. But beyond that, there's a more important reason why Judah matters. And it's because through Judah's lineage, it's through his lineage that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, would one day come. And that fact, which may not seem to be much more than a point of interesting information at the beginning of chapter 38, will become downright astonishing by the time you get to the end. So what happens? Well, not long after Joseph gets hauled off to Egypt, Judah decides... It's time to stretch his wings a bit. Leaving his brothers behind, he takes up living amongst a foreign people, some Canaanites. And he strikes a friendship with one man in particular named Hira. Now, just in making this move, right? Just that move, in doing that, Judah, who's not yet married, is flirting with disaster. If you go back to places like Genesis 24... And read the instructions that Abraham gave his servant as he sent him out to find a wife for Isaac. Or if you read the instructions that Isaac later gave on to his son Jacob in Genesis 28. What you find in both of these places is this strict warning. That under no circumstance are Isaac and Jacob to marry someone outside their kindred. Someone from among the Canaanites. They are to remain separate and distinct within the world and are not to become mixed in with or absorbed into other nations through intermarriage. Judah, however, ignoring the advice his father would most certainly have given to him on these matters, goes and lives amongst the Canaanites anyway, with predictable results. He ends up marrying a Canaanite woman who is the daughter of a man named Shua, but her name is not given, which I think is the author's commentary on that decision. And then she promptly conceives, and they have a first son named Er, and later on a second son named Onan, and finally a third son named Shelah. And at this point, the story gets increasingly crazy. The craziness starts when Judah gets a wife for his oldest son, Er, which tells you, among other things, that a lot of time has passed. At any rate, the woman he chose was named Tamar, 
whose name suggests that she was quite beautiful. Well, Er and Tamar marry, and we're then told, very simply, that Er was a wicked man, and the Lord killed him. Now, we're not told why this happened. We're only told that it happened. And as much as we might like to know why, we're not told, and it's really not necessary at the end of the day for understanding this story. Now, in order to make sense of the events that follow from this, you need to know that there was in that day a custom that later on was enshrined in Mosaic law known as leveret marriage. What was this law about? Essentially, the law required that if the husband died before an heir had been produced, it was the duty of the next closest relative in line to see to it that an heir was produced. The operating assumption behind this, says one writer, was that the family as a whole had a responsibility to ensure the continuity of the line of the dead relative. This law further ensured that the dead man's property remained in the extended family and it provided a means of protection for the widow, sparing her from having to marry outside of the clan. At any rate, after Ur's death... With Tamar being childless, this custom kicks in. And so Judah instructs Er's brother, Onan, to fulfill his leveret responsibilities. And on the surface, Onan appears to comply with this and marries Tamar, but then shows by his actions that he has no intention of producing an heir for his brother, because an heir would not be his, and there would be nothing in it for him. Well, Onan's charade might have fooled everyone else, but it did not fool God, who knew what was going on and promptly sent judgment upon Onan, resulting in his death as well. Now, all this striking down of people might seem a bit harsh, but you have to remember that there's more at stake here than just producing a descendant for Judah's son, heir. Right? This is the very bloodline of the Messiah that is being threatened right now by the wickedness of of Judah himself and his sons. At any rate, after the loss of two sons, it seems at this point Judah becomes worried that if this pattern continues, he will soon have no sons at all and will himself be without an heir. So he sends Tamar back to her father under the guise of wanting to wait until his last son, Shelah, is older before he's asked to take up his responsibilities toward Tamar. But the truth is, as the story makes clear, he has no intention whatsoever of letting that third marriage happen. Well, time passes. Shelah is now old enough to be married, but still Judah does nothing, at which point Tamar realizes that it's never going to happen. And so when she hears... That Judah is going on a trip, she decides to take matters into her own hands, knowing of Judah's vulnerability because his wife has recently died, and perhaps knowing of his personal weaknesses in this area, she positions herself at a point along the road where she knows Judah will be passing by. And disguising herself as a temple prostitute, she manages to seduce Judah into sleeping with her. Return for her services, the fee was a kid, a young goat, 
which of course Judah doesn't have with him, so he agrees to give her items that essentially are his proof of identity, roughly the equivalent of giving her his driver's license, which she will hold until the goat is delivered. Well, she returns to her home, and so when the payment is sent by Judah, she's nowhere to be found, and so he lets the whole thing drop, no doubt thinking that that's the end of the matter. It's over. Three months later, it's discovered that Tamar is pregnant, and in an amazing display of self-righteousness, Judah determines that for her punishment she must be burned, And it's at this point that Tamar produces the personal items given to her by Judah, making it obvious that he is the one that has made her pregnant. And in that moment of revelation, as Judah's sin and his hypocrisy are exposed, he sees immediately how his own failure to provide Sheila as a husband for Tamar has pushed her into taking such drastic actions. And so he declares that she, Tamar, is more righteous than he. And judging from Judah's response here as well as what he'll do later on in Genesis 44, it would seem that this might have been a genuine turning point for Judah. In other words... What we see in chapter 38 may very well be a real brokenness that was the leading edge of his own personal and spiritual reformation. Well, following all this, we're told of the birth of twin boys to Tamar named Perez and Zerah. Zerah technically is the first one out because he puts a hand out and red threads wrapped around his wrist, but really it's Perez who's the first to fully appear. And with that the account of Judah comes to an end. Well, before we draw any conclusions or observations from that portion, with the momentum we already have, I want us to keep going and turn our attention now for a minute to the account that immediately follows, chapter 39, the account of what happened to Joseph after he arrived in Egypt. As chapter 39 begins, we pick up right where we left off at the end of chapter 37. Joseph has been sold by the Ishmaelites to the captain of Pharaoh's guard, a man named Potiphar. And right off the bat, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. He was with Joseph. And that he caused everything he did to succeed. With the result that his responsibilities gradually increased until he had oversight, not only of Potiphar's household, but really all of Potiphar's affairs. So much so that the only thing uh, the text tells us that Potiphar had to think about when he woke up each morning was what he was going to eat that day. Let me tell you something. When you get to that point, when the biggest decision of your day is whether you're going to have steak or seafood, that's relaxed. That's the position of a man who has complete confidence that his affairs are being perfectly looked after. And that's what it was like for Potiphar. Ever since Joseph showed up, Potiphar had a good thing. He had a really good thing going. And he would have been very reluctant to allow anything to interfere with that. 
Well, unfortunately, it wasn't just Potiphar that was impressed with Joseph. His wife was impressed as well, but for different reasons. So she ends up shamelessly propositioning Joseph, practically begging him to sleep with her. And Joseph, to his everlasting credit, absolutely refuses to entertain this idea. And in doing so, he's motivated by at least two things. Firstly, his conviction that doing such a thing would have been an offense against God. And secondly, his conviction that to do so would be a complete betrayal of his master's trust and confidence. The very thought of which was repulsive to Joseph. Now as the passage reveals, Potiphar's wife isn't one to take no for an answer. And so she badgers him day after day, trying to get him to cave in. Eventually, in an act of frustration and even desperation, she grabs hold of Joseph one day, and in the process of his trying to get away from her, yet again, Joseph loses his outer garment, and he runs off without it. Well, Potiphar's wife, seeing that she cannot have what she wants, turns on Joseph, now perfectly willing to destroy this one that only moments before was the object of her desire, And the first thing she does is gather together the other male servants of the household, men over whom Joseph was in charge, and possibly playing on their resentment at having to be supervised by this foreigner, she shares her fictitious account of what had happened to her. Now, why does she do this? I think for two possible reasons. One is she knew that her husband would likely be very reluctant to do away with someone who'd been such a huge blessing to his household and his life. And so by making sure that the other servants knew what had happened, she was ensuring that her husband could not just let it slide. Right? She was making sure that it was public knowledge, and that would force her husband to act, no matter how reluctant he might feel about doing so. The other reason she may have done this was because, in all likelihood, this is not the first time she's attempted to be unfaithful to her husband. It may well be that Potiphar already knew about her flirtatious behavior, perhaps already suspected her of infidelity in the past, and so having other witnesses would corroborate her story, would cast her as the victim rather than as being the predator that she actually was. Well, her hubby comes home and she tells him the story and he is predictably furious about what has happened, of course, However, there's at least one thing here, I think, that indicates that Potiphar may have had some doubts regarding his wife's story, and it's this. He doesn't kill Joseph. I mean, given his authority, given what sort of man he was, given what he did for a living, there should have been no difficulty for him whatsoever to have Joseph killed. You'd think that'd be his immediate response, but it isn't. Instead, he throws Joseph in with the king's prisoners, which might be referring to a special section within the larger prison. might not. At this point, we're told again that the Lord was with Joseph. We're reminded he's still with Joseph, which in this instance meant that he was favored in the eyes of the prison keeper. And he's even given a, a position of responsibility and authority over the other prisoners. And so we see the pattern of the first part of the story now repeated again as Joseph once again succeeds 
in this area of dealing with other people. And this brings the account of Joseph to an end at this point. Now, stopping here and looking back over two extremely fascinating, revealing, in some ways disturbing accounts, certainly at least with regard to Judah, but looking back over these things, we need to stop and think about what is going on here. And in doing that, in highlighting some of the implications that I believe flow out of these verses, I want to do so in two broad categories. I want to consider how these stories help us to think about our life before God, how we live it. Secondly, I want you to see how these events fit into and advance God's overall redemptive plan and purposes and so prepare us for and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, there are some helpful things to be found in both these passages in the story of Judah We see this tragic and complicated results that came from his initial bad decision to leave his people behind and instead place himself in a situation that was precarious to say the least and which was reminiscent of the sort of decisions Lot made many years earlier and which also led to tragedy. And it points to reality that I believe frequently accompanies these sorts of decisions and that is the reality of unintended and unforeseen consequences. No matter how clever we are, no matter how long and hard we've thought through a situation, there are limits to what we're able to do in anticipating what may or may not happen as a result of decisions that we might make. This is true even when the things we're considering are good and right things. Right? And after all, we aren't God, or even close. We can't possibly know or predict how a thing will always turn out. And if this holds true when we're considering doing things that are wise and just, I think it's equally, if not more true, when it comes to the dicey, questionable decisions we sometimes make, which are often not the result of nearly as much reflection and are typically more of a gut-level response than anything else. Such was the decision of Judah, I believe, to go and live amongst the Canaanites, His initial bad decision against the advice and counsel he would have received growing up led to all sorts of things that he would not have predicted or foreseen. And if ignoring a human authority, such as his father, led to such things, how much more might ignoring divine, infallible, all-knowing authority lead to the same? How foolish are we knowing the inescapability of unintended consequences to ignore the instruction and wisdom of God for whom there are never unforeseen events or unintended consequences. How crazy is it to ignore counsel such as that? And yet we still do it, don't we? Just like Judah. The other thing I would highlight from chapter 38, and there's, there's more than this to be seen to be sure, but the other thing that stands out to me in terms of impacting us where we live is evidence in this connection between Judah's sin and Tamar's act of desperation. 
Right? I mean, interestingly, the passage makes no comment about the morality of Tamar's behavior in deceiving Judah into sleeping with her. Now, there is, as I understand it, some debate in scholar circles as to whether the Leveret marriage custom would have extended beyond the brothers to the father-in-law of the bride, should such things become necessary. And if so, if that is the case, then Tamar's actions toward Judah need to be seen in that light. However, even if that was not the case, we would have to, and we had to charge Tamar with wrongdoing, we'd still have to do so with a great deal of understanding and compassion for a woman who was terribly sinned against and placed in a very difficult situation, a situation she should never have been in were it not for the sin of her father-in-law. He's the one that put her in that situation. And that reality, right, just that reality, the corporate consequences of our sin is something worth taking time to reflect upon. To consider how our own sin and faithlessness might be doing the same sort of thing within our own families, among our friends, and within our churches. Could it be that that behavior that drives you to distraction in your wife or your husband can be traced, at least in part, to your own sin? Could it be that the attitude or perspective that you find so unacceptable in your child is at least in part a response to your own failings and sin as a parent? This passage, among other things, ought to cause us to take stock of our lives in this area, to perhaps pause before we make that next pronouncement or formulate that next judgment and consider if and how our own failings have resulted in the very thing that we have come to despise so much. And if the result of your own reflections here brings you to the place that Judah got to, where he saw and admitted his own hypocrisy and sin, then even as you grieve those realities, as you should, remember that there is mercy and there is forgiveness for the broken and repentant, and that it is only the cross of Christ that makes it even possible for you to admit to these sorts of things without being crushed by them and which will in the end bring you through to the other side, and in God's good time will extinguish these kinds of failings from your life forever. And then turning to chapter 39, there are life lessons to be found there as well. For one thing, Judah's, Joseph's response to the temptation by Potiphar's wife is a perfect illustration of the very counsel that appears in the New Testament much later on, which encourages God's people to flee youthful lusts, which wage war against the soul. I noticed that Joseph, when the temptation was at its strongest point, didn't stand around considering the pros and cons of the thing. He fled. He ran. He took off. Why did he run? My guess is this. While Joseph was a pretty good guy... He's still a man. He's still also a sinner. He wasn't perfect. And I think he knew that. I think he knew that no matter how much he was resolved not to give in, he still might. 
I think he knew that if he stood there and tried to reason it out or think about whether in fact it would be such a horrible thing after all, if he hesitated and stuck around, he was a goner. So he ran. And you know, sometimes that is the wisest, most noble, most godly thing to do in the face of temptation. Just run. The other thing that we see illustrated in chapter 39 is something we have seen before, so I won't dwell on it. But please notice how God answered Joseph's prayers. Right? Here's Joseph, sold in slavery by his family, taken to a faraway place, away from his father, away from Benjamin, whom he loved. And despite the fact that when he got to Potiphar's place, things went really well, at first at least, don't you know that he was praying every day for God to deliver him? Don't you think Joseph would have been pleading with God to hear him and to respond to his great need? Certainly he was. Well, guess what? God did hear him. God did respond to Joseph. And what was the response? He took him from the comfort of Potiphar's place, allowed him to be public disgrace, saw him placed into a prison cell where we're told once again that God was with him there as well. What's the point? The point is, God was with Joseph. He was no less with Joseph when he was in the prison than he was when he was comfortably situated in Potiphar's house, running the whole show, or even when he was back in his father's place. God never moved. Even though Joseph did. God knew what he was doing. And so rather than answer Joseph's prayers by delivering him from difficult circumstances in this instance, he answered by providing for Joseph in the midst of difficult circumstances that he was not yet prepared to remove Joseph from. So if that's you, I mean, if you're in one of those places, pray, absolutely pray for God to deliver you. That's a perfectly good and right thing to pray for. But along with it, pray for God to come and meet you in the middle of it. Pray for God to comfort you, to give you patience, to show you how you can honor Him in the place that He apparently is not yet prepared to deliver you from. I know that's a hard prayer to pray. It's a grown-up prayer. But it's the right one. Finally, after seeing what these passages separately can tell us about how we live our lives before God, I want to see very quickly how the events described in these passages together fit into and advance God's overall redemptive plan and purposes. How they prepare us for and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Regarding all of that, one of the main things to be seen is how Genesis 38 highlights a very real problem and concern for God's people. What was that concern? It was that they would become absorbed into and lost within the pagan cultures around them. That they would lose their distinctiveness as the people of God, including and especially the distinctiveness of their faith and worship, 
and would instead begin imitating the faith and practices of the pagan cultures around them. That was a real problem as the subsequent history of Israel shows over and over again. And you see right here, very early on before all of that even gets started, in the account of Judah, you get this glimpse, this foreshadowing, this cautionary tale of what can happen and indeed what will happen if the people of God leave their own people behind and become mixed up in and identify themselves with the nations. The account of Judah reveals how precarious and fragile the situation is, how they are in fact only one generation away from losing their distinctiveness. I mean, see how quickly and easily the bloodline of the promised Messiah was placed in jeopardy by Judah's actions. And so if their absorption into the Canaanite cultures around them was such an imminent danger, how in the world is this tiny tribe going to survive long enough to become an entire nation without completely losing their identity? I'll tell you how. Egypt. Egypt would be the place where the people of Israel could grow and develop for years and years, virtually unhindered, virtually unpolluted by the surrounding culture. Why? Because of the very strong dislike that the Egyptians developed towards the Hebrew people over time and which endured for the entirety of their stay and which then made the intermingling of their cultures very unlikely. And so Egypt, in the providence of God, Egypt was the perfect incubator within which God insulated and protected and multiplied his people. In short, the story of Judah highlights the problem that the story of Joseph is going to solve. It highlights the very real danger that the story of Joseph addresses. Another thing that the juxtaposition of these two stories does for us is demonstrate how God can and does accomplish his purposes no matter what. Right? I mean, when his people are faithless and disobedient, as the story of Judah illustrates, or when they're faithful and true, as the story of jo Joseph illustrates, whatever the case, in any and every circumstance, God is not hindered. And he's fully capable of bringing his plans to completion. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's, it's no small comfort to know, at least to me, that God's purposes continue in spite of the evil intentions of others, and even in spite of the character failings of his own people. Lastly, both of these stories point us to Christ in different ways, one by means of a negative example, the other by means of a positive one. Negatively, the story of Judah stands forever as a picture of God's graciousness to both use and save people who have neither earned or deserved his kindness. Indeed, it's nothing less than ironic that the very sinfulness that Jesus came to redeem is illustrated and permanently enshrined within the broken lives of his own ancestors. And then positively we see Joseph, who unlike his brother Judah, when faced with severe, repeated temptation, did not give in. 
And that obedience cost him a great deal. And we are reminded in this act of faithfulness of the one to whom Joseph points us, whose obedience also cost him a great deal, and by whose faithfulness in the face of the greatest of all possible temptations allowed him to remain the sinless, spotless lamb by whose perfect sacrifice we have been forgiven and set free. Let's pray. Father, help us now to take away from this time the things that you want us to keep and have. And please take and blow away all those things that aren't helpful or good or right or aren't going to build up your people, aren't going to cause your people to love you more. Father, continue to work your truth, even this truth, into our hearts. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll collect that.